Good to be here. As Justin said, I am Rob Capel. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Midtown. And, uh, and I'm going to be finishing our series in Revelation today. In Revelation 2 and 3, our Letters to the Churches series. Anybody been here throughout the summer and been catching these messages? Maybe you've been watching online and, uh, and you've been catching these messages with us and following along. It's been a pretty powerful series. I've been, I've been I think I was... I don't want to say surprised, but I was surprised at the beginning of the summer just how impactful being in Revelation alone has been for people. The, the feedback I've gotten from people is, is wow, to, to hear God speaking to your life through the words in Revelation has been really meaningful. Because maybe this is a book in the Bible that you've tended to, you know, not dive too deeply in. Maybe it's a less highlighted book in the New Testament for you. It's different from Ephesians, you know, the amount of time you've spent in it. But to find that with a little bit of digging and some context that uh, some of the strange language in these chapters is really speaking to you. And, and I think that's true for the rest of the book of Revelation as well. Uh, the series has been really meaningful for me personally this summer as I've just um, processed my own life and my own role and what it means to lead this church and to be a church any time in history, but in, in this time in history, in a time that's had its, its specific challenges, um, 2020 and 2021, and, and this image of Jesus walking among the lampstands that we talked about in the beginning of the series has just stuck with me. So many, I've had so many moments throughout the summer where, um, where God has reminded me, I am in your midst I'm, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's in the churches. I'm the one who's walking among the lampstands. I had a, a, one particular moment this summer where I, I woke up in the middle of the night. Our daughter was crying, kind of like that. And, I, um, and so I got her some milk. And then for me, I, I can, um, if I'm pretty stressed out, I can still tend to fall asleep at night pretty well because I'm just so exhausted by the end of the day. But if I wake up in the middle of the night, that's when all the thoughts start churning and it can be hard to fall back asleep. And so I just, I, I was not falling back asleep in the middle of the night stressed out thinking about this situation and this situation. And, um, and I was just like, I got to go pray. And so I went and, found, I went and got on the floor of another room in our house. And, um, and immediately, just, just, I, I just imagined in, in my mind's eye, I saw Jesus walking there among the lampstands. And I, I sensed him saying to me, I care more about your church than you do. I cared more about the seven churches than John did. I'm, I'm here. This is my church. And I even felt him say to me, Rob, you need to give Grace Midtown back to me. Give it back to me. I'm the shepherd. I'm the one. It's all about me. I'm the one that's leading. And so for me, I just, I had a very sweet, beautiful moment of surrender, really fueled by the words in this series that we've been in. And so I'm so grateful for, um, for this time we've spent in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that, you know, oh, I'm not stressed anymore or anything like that, but, but I, I have something I'm able to even go back to in some of those moments of, God, okay, okay, it's yours. You, you're, you're here. Why am I living my life and doing my job in moments in my default mode as if you're not here, as if you're not in our midst? I don't know if that speaks to you, even for your own life and your own responsibilities and your own concerns. Jesus is in your midst. This is not what the sermon's about today, but a little recap. All right, so uh, we're gonna be reading Revelation 3, 14 through 22. This is the church at Laodicea. It's the last of the seven churches in these passages. And we're just going to dive right in. Revelation 3, 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the 
Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve or salve. How do you say that word? Salve? Salve? Is it actually salve? It's salve. Okay. Salve to put on your eyes. That was one of those I should have Googled before coming up here. So you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So this, uh, this letter, this, this contains some of the more famous, a few of the most famous verses from these passages. If you've thought of or heard of the letters to the churches before um, this series, you, you may have specifically heard a few of these verses, like the hot nor cold, you, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to sp- I, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Maybe you've heard that verse before. It's one of the most famous verses in the book of Revelation and in this, uh, these passages here. And then also this image of, of Jesus saying, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If you open the door to me, I'll come in and I will dine with you. These are really well-known verses because of their imagery. We're going to talk a little bit about um, what they meant for the people of Laodicea and what they mean for us. Um, but I just want to begin by telling you the the kind of big idea of this message. And that is that vulnerability, you want to take notes, you can take notes. Vulnerability is the beginning of intimacy. Vulnerability is the beginning of intimacy. This is true in any human relationship, a romantic relationship or a friendship and a community. Vulnerability is the beginning of intimacy, and it's true in our relationship with Jesus. Vulnerability is the beginning of intimacy. Specifically, in this context of this letter, what I mean by this is awareness and acknowledgement of our need opens us up to receive Jesus anew. Awareness and acknowledgement of our need opens us up to receive Jesus anew. And this is This is relevant in this passage because what we see happening with this church is that they are not aware of their need. And Jesus is essentially, the the rebuke portion of the letter is Jesus making them aware of their need, not to beat them up, not to bully them, not to condemn them, and to say, oh, you're, you're rich so you have no place in my kingdom or anything like that. He's wanting them to see their need so that they can then receive him anew. I'm knocking at the door. I want to come into your life in this way. Awareness and acknowledgement of our need opens us up to receive Jesus anew. I've, uh, I've, I've been very aware of my need this week, um, more so than normal. I'm just going to come out and say it. I have hand, foot, and mouth disease. 
I do. I know I'm on the back end of it. It's not contagious by me breathing on you. This is not COVID, okay? So I know you hear any sort of like illness and you're like, oh my, he's not wearing a mask, you know? But it's, you'd have to kiss me or other stuff in order to get this from me. So just keep your distance. If I gave you a friendly elbow this morning, that was for you. That was for you instead of the fist bump. It's me looking out for you. Um, and, uh, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm on the back end of it. Earlier this week, it was like crazy fever, hallucinating through the night for a few nights and then sweating through the night for the nights after that, you know, shakes. And I mean, it was, it was like very, 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 without being dramatic, like one of the sickest, maybe the sickest I've ever been in those terms. Um, and now what's left is I've just got these sores in the back of my throat, which I'm not going to show you, but it's rough and I feel it. So I just want you to know it is with great physical pain that I bring this message to you today. And hopefully that adds some gravitas to the words. I don't know. I I really want to preach this sermon. I've I've been looking forward to this Sunday. Um, And so as long as I wasn't going to be putting anyone else in danger, I was determined to to be here to do this with you guys. But there's something about being aware of your need. I had a few moments this week where I was just so miserable, truly, that, that I found myself just calling out to God, just going, Jesus, help me, like so physically sick. Um, and then other moments even where I found myself, and this sounds like, like I'm joking, but like, like legitimately surrendering my life to God, not bargaining, not like, if you heal me, I'll give you everything or anything like that. But just, I found myself just going, God, I, I want to give you everything because there was something about the moment of such brokenness I just, I could, I was so, I was deeply aware at the deepest part of me that, that Jesus was the greatest thing in my life and that he's what I really wanted. There's, I was just aware of that in my moment of misery and was just go, just saying, it was, it became a, a worship place for me of just going, God, you can just, I surrender it all to you again. I want to give it all to you. And there's something, I don't know, there's something about need that opens us up and wakes us up to um, not just the provision of Jesus in our lives, but the beauty of knowing and walking with Jesus. So I want to give you some context for this city, this church, Laodicea, and we can talk a little bit about Jesus' message to them. So here's, here's uh, the, the reality. The city of Laodicea is a, a wealthy city. There was an earthquake in AD 17 um, that messed up a few different cities. Philadelphia was one of those, and we read about Philadelphia earlier this summer. Um, and Rome, the, the empire, offered funds to rebuild the city of Philadelphia. So there was this aid that came in. Another earthquake happened in AD 61, and several other cities were damaged. Colossae, was actually completely wiped out, or it was damaged and never rebuilt. And so the letter to the church, the letter, the letter of Colossians, um, that city was no more after AD 61. Um, one interesting thing, though, in, the, in Colossians, Paul says, hey, uh, send this letter to the church at Laodicea as well, and send, send their greeting, send my greetings to them. And so even the words of Colossians, if you want to know a little more about Laodicea, you can kind of apply that message to Laodicea. As well, and, and maybe some of the people from Colossians moved to Laodicea by this time. 
And so uh, AD 61 Colossae was never rebuilt, uh, but there were multiple other cities that Rome funded to rebuild at that time. The only city to refuse the funds from the empire was Laodicea. And for them, this was something to boast in. For the city itself, they essentially said, we're good. We don't need Rome's money. We can rebuild ourselves. If this is just a sign of the, the sort of wealth that existed in that city alone. Um, and and it, it, it smacks of this language that Jesus is saying, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. I don't need a thing. Um, it was the banking center of the entire region, Laodicea was, which you can just imagine what that means. There's wealth flowing in, there's wealth flowing out, and there's wealth being dispersed there in that city as well. Uh, there, it was also a medical center. So it was home to a medical school. People came from all over the place to train as doctors at the school in Laodicea. And it specialized in ophthalmology, like eye medicine, because there was this Phrygian eye powder that uh, people would come far and wide to get to help with their vision. We're seeing a pattern here in the words that Jesus is saying to this, the people of this city. Uh, there was also some specific um, fashion influence coming out of Laodicea. They were known for their special black sheep's wool. It was exclusive to the area, and clothing made of black wool became a popular fashion trend around the region. And finally, maybe the, the most distinct thing about this area was uh, they, did, they had all these different, they had, they had wealth, finances, they had the medical emphasis, they had the fashion center, but they did not have a good source of water. So they had to bring water in from one of two different places. There were only options. One was from the north, Hierapolis was another city, and there were these hot springs. They're still there today. People will go visit them. There's resorts that are kind of built around the hot springs where you could stay at a resort and like get into a spring. And so they... There were aqueducts where they would bring the, the hot spring water into Laodicea, and it was hot, kind of chemically water, and it ran four or five miles to Laodicea. But by the time it got to Laodicea, what happened to the water? It was no longer hot. It was lukewarm, but the chemicals were still there, so you couldn't drink it unless you wanted to make yourself vomit. People would, you could drink it to induce vomiting for health purposes. Otherwise, the water was useless by the time it got to Laodicea. There's another source of water to the southeast in Colossae, which was no longer a city, but there, were these, there was a snow-capped mountain nearby, Mount Cadmus, so they could bring water, and this was like alpine quality, like you could probably sell it in a glass bottle at a gas station for $4 or something. You know, this was the nice stuff that, that in, in, the, in Colossae, it was like this nice cold water that people boasted in, but they could bring it in 11 miles away to Laodicea. And what happened to this alpine snow-capped mountain water by the time it gets to Laodicea? It's lukewarm, which is such an interesting predicament. Two sources of water, hot, hot springs and cold snow mountain, and both, by the time they get to this city, are tepid, lukewarm water. And so Jesus is uh, he's using 
a geographical and a cultural fixture of their context to make a point to them. He's not saying hot is good and cold is bad. And so like, I wish your faith was either hot like you were on fire for me or cold like you hated me. It's not that. He's not saying, you know, that being lukewarm is worse than not knowing Jesus or anything like that. He's making a point using their context and saying, hey, your faith is like your water. It's not doing anything for me. In fact, it's kind of making me sick. If he was writing a letter to Atlanta and he wanted to make, use an illustration or an analogy, he might say, your faith is like flat Coca-Cola. Flat Coke faith. You ever tasted flat Coke? It's the worst thing in the world. Flat is disgusting, despicable. As an Atlantan, I can not stand for flat Coke. I want to spit it out of my mouth. Maybe this would be the illustration he's making to Atlanta. Flat Coke. Your, your faith is like flat Coke. All of this, all, he's got all these illustrations, right, that he's, he's making, he's naming their wealth. You say I'm wealthy, I don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold. So, uh, so the real wealth, buy gold from me refined by the fire so that you can, become, you can actually become rich. And white clothes to wear, and this is, this is a throwback to some of the other language in Revelation of, of people being clothed in white representing this righteousness and holiness that's given only by God as opposed to the fashion of their day, their fashionable black sheep's wool. He's, 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 he's playing with the, the, the cultural context of the moment to say, I'm offering what's real, what's true, the thing that, sets you, that you think sets you apart doesn't actually, it's meaningless. He says, um, and I could cover your shameful nakedness in salve, I said it right, to put on your eyes so you can see. Some of the language that's, um, that's used here around wretchedness, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. That word wretched means one who's suffered troubles or trials. And there's even the, the, a callousness that comes with wretchedness, this Greek word that's used. So it's almost this question of like, have you suffered hardship and you haven't even acknowledged it yourself? You haven't even grieved it yourself. You haven't even suffered with yourself. This, the word compassion means to suffer with. So to have compassion on somebody else means you see their suffering and you enter in proactively in such a way that you suffer with them, right? And maybe you've heard also this idea of self-compassion to suffer with yourself. So many of us, hey, we're Atlanta, we're the city too busy to hate. We're, we're just continuing to move and stay busy and, and move on to the next thing. If you haven't suffered with yourself, if you haven't practiced self-compassion, then this word might actually apply to you, wretched, which sounds horrible. It means you've suffered trials and troubles and you've become, you're not even aware of it, you've become calloused. You aren't even aware of your need, Jesus says. 
And it's not a pointed finger. It's not angry. It's not condemnation. He's where the whole letter is going. It's I'm knocking at the door. I want to meet your need. I want to give you myself. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind. The word blind is used all throughout the, the New Testament and the Gospels when Jesus heals blind people, when he's um, challenging the, the religious leaders saying, hey, you're like the blind leading the blind. You're, you're the, you consider yourself guides for the blind, but you're blind guides. This is the same word that's used over and over again. And it, it actually speaks to, um, this is interesting, the word blind, it, it doesn't just mean you can't see. It's, it means your vision is obscured almost by smoke or something like that. Like it's not just that you can't see, it's that there's something obscuring your vision. I'm reminded of the, the miracle in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus heals, he spits on the ground and puts it, or he spits in a guy's eye is what he does. Spits in his eye. Great. If you need prayer today, I promise to not spit in your eye. Today. Next week maybe, but today we'll not do that. Jesus spits in the guy's eye, and he says, hey, do you see anything? And the guy says, uh, kind of. I see men like trees. And it's like his vision is still obscured, but it's getting a little bit clearer and a little bit better. Things are beginning to come into focus, but he's, it's still not fully there. So then Jesus prays for him again. He goes, how about now? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, that's better. So it was like it took a couple tries, but the, 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 the picture of vision becoming clearer and clearer and less obscured is what we see here. And it's almost like you can imagine someone feeling their way through a fog before this. He says, you're, you're blind. You don't realize, but there's something obscuring your vision. You don't know what you don't know, and you can't see what you can't see. But I want to free you. I want to heal you. I want to give you real wealth. Need. Need. Vulnerability is the beginning of intimacy. Awareness and acknowledgement of our need opens us up to receive Jesus anew. I want to give just a quick little aside word about wealth. Can I do that? Because this is part of the letter, but it's not actually the point. Uh, we, I think we expect Jesus to beat up on rich people, right? Because we see it a little bit in the Gospels where he says, it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He tells the one guy, sell everything and follow me. The guy can't do it. He goes home sad. We know this story. And so there is some harsh challenge to, to really rich people in the Gospels. Um, and, but, but we see this passage here. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you, you're rich. He doesn't even say, you're not generous, He's simply naming their wealth as an obstacle in their ability to be in touch with their need for God. That's it. He's naming their wealth as an obstacle. And so I just want to name this, that many of us, like Justin said, have had a really challenging past year, year and a half financially. The world has been very uncertain. Some of you have lost, had, a, had great financial loss over the past year, year and a half. And the message of Jesus to you and your finances right now is probably one of great comfort and wanting to tell you, hey, it's not always going to be like this. It's going to be okay. I have your, I'm going to provide for you. I've got daily bread for you. I'm le- you can trust me still. You can, I'm leading you on into the future. Others have actually, their wealth has increased during this pandemic, kind of just depending on your industry and where you found yourself 18 months ago. Um, Regardless, most of us, if we were honest about ourselves, would still be some of the wealthiest people who've ever lived. 
We have more resources at our disposal. We have the ability to get a job and make money, the ability to, uh, to grow wealth and to live in relative comfort and actually to not just have what you need, but to have a lot of what you want. Now, we aren't in touch with that because we just keep wanting more stuff. <laughs> and we tend to live up to our means or beyond our means. And so we, we sort of live in a constant financial crisis um, of our own doing so often. This is not, I'm not, it's not even a message about that. What I want to say, though, is that we need to, first of all, I think we need to be aware of our wealth. And I, I was drawn to, in thinking about this message, drawn to um, a teaching from years ago by Mike Breen about these, this idea of these five capitals. So I just want to, I'm going to burn through this really fast. You can Google five, Breen five capitals. There's books on it. There's articles on it. There's blogs on it. Really interesting stuff. But the five capitals are spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, and financial. Spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, Financial, spiritual being the capital that God gives, the anointing, the power of God, your faith, the presence of God in your life is the highest and greatest capital, the hardest to get because only God gives it. You can't earn it. You can't manipulate your way into it. God gives it. The second highest is relational. This is the the people in your life that you've invested relationship time into and you've got relational capital in the world around you. The next is physical capital. That's your physical capacity to work 40 hours a week or whatever, bend over and play with your kids or your, your ability to do things with your body. With, if you start to lose that, everything else starts to break down, everything beneath that capital. The next is intellectual. This is your creativity, your skills, what you learned in school, your, not, your on-the-job knowledge, your ability to function in life, what you kind of offer with your mind or your, the things you know how to do to the world around you, your intellectual capital. That's lower than physical because if you lose physical capacity, that impedes upon your intellectual capital. And the, fi- the lowest one is financial capital. It's the lowest because um, you can simply work and earn it. But the rest require something a little bit more. And spiritual is the highest because it's only given by God. Now, the thing about and you might be like, man, financial is like the hardest for me to get a hold of. Why isn't that the, the highest right now? This is just the way... Brian and these guys set it up, and I tend to agree. Now, here's the deal. You can leverage one, and what are we talking about, Rob? Just go here with me. You can leverage one capital for another. Okay, this is going somewhere. You can leverage one for another, meaning you can leverage your, uh, your financial capital to gain intellectual capital. Pay college tuition. Spend money, learn some stuff. Um, you can leverage your physical and intellectual capital for financial capital. You work a job, you get paid right? You see these things exchanging one for another. Um, You see Jesus even leveraging spiritual capital for financial capital. Hey, go find it. Go cast the net, catch a fish. There's a coin in its mouth. He's leveraging faith and finding that God is providing their needs when they need them. You can also, you can even leverage financial capital for spiritual capital, but there's really only one way to do that. And that is by giving it away. Because any other attempt to leverage financial capital for spiritual capital is an attempted manipulation. 
We see this in the, in the book of Acts where the sorcerer tries to buy the anointing from the apostles. And they go hard. And they even say, you have no place in this ministry. They cast the man out. Why? Because you cannot buy the anointing of God. You can open yourself up to it by removing obstacles and by living generously towards God and towards people. The only way to leverage financial capital is by giving it away. And so I want to, um, there, there are two words that I want to put before us. This is sort of the antidote for the wealthy disciple who feels stuck in their walk with Jesus. And these, these two words are going to be an antidote for everybody else in just a minute, but I just want to lay these out here right now. The two words are risk and generosity. Risk and generosity. Feel stuck in your life, stuck in kind of comfortable living, stuck in just a rut. What risks is God, what risks are God calling you, is God calling you to take in your life right now? In generosity. For me, in the, I, there's, there's even some ways I would categorize this or, or speak into it a little more. I like to think of it as creative risk. My wife and I, we try to have some creative risk we're always working towards in our lives. What's the next creative risk for us? It might be an album, might be a book, might be the making of another baby. <laughs> we're trying to always, we, we want to have some creative risk on the horizon that we're moving towards maybe once a year some, on some rhythm, something that's keeping us, keeping our edge in our life. And just because we're, we know that God's got us here to, to create and be a generative presence in the world. And then wild generosity, wild generosity. The way we try to um, relate to our money and, and generosity as a family is uh, we're methodical in our giving to the church and our generosity to the church, and we're spontaneous in our generosity towards people. Methodical in our giving to the church, that means it's like set to a schedule, it's automatic, it's auto-draft. We just give, we're just giving. We've lived like this. We've, guys, we have, I know it's like, okay, the pastor's talking about money. No, I have, since we were kids getting married, 22, 23, we've given methodically just because we were in ministry and felt like, man, if we're going to trust God with anything, we have to trust him with finances. It's like a no-brainer. It's not even an option. We need to go find something else to do if we're not going to live this way. And so we've given methodically when we had nothing, and We've watched God provide in every possible different scenario in our lives over the past, how many years have we been married now? 13 in October? Are we going on 13? Is it going to be 13? It feels the 12 to 13 mark, for whatever reason, it's hard to remember what year we're at. It was, it was 08. It'll be 13 in October. She said, I'm not even mad at you. <laughs> 13 years we've watched God just provide everything we've needed and, and bless, he's blessed us. Take that how you want. I'm not trying to preach some give to get gospel right now, but we've watched him provide. Um, and then we've tried to live with spontaneous generosity towards the people around us. To just give a wild gift to somebody because we could in that moment, you know? And, and even ways that surprised us. And... Um, I think that's a healthy, it's been a healthy way to, to hold that. And 
What Jesus isn't saying is, rich people, you shouldn't be rich. If you have money, how dare you? Look, hear me say, if you have found a way to put compounding interest to use with your finances, good. Good. God can do a lot with that. Make money. Save it up. Turn money into money. There's some people out there in this room right now watching on the line that you actually know that you can make some money. And maybe you hear a message like this and you start to wince because you feel like, am I going to be like shamed for it? No. Turn it into money. Grow it. Do your thing. That's amazing. Watch God. I do not believe that Jesus has a problem with anyone having money. What he wants to free us from is the, the, the complete focus on finances in our life where we think that that's everything and we look to it for everything and then we live for security and therefore we live in slavery. The antidote is risk and generosity. Trust me with this. So that's my aside about wealth, finances. We'll come back to it a little bit. Flat Coke faith. Flat Coke faith. Your faith has lost its edge. This is essentially the message Jesus is giving. Your faith has lost its edge. It's not even, it doesn't even have that Coca-Cola crisp to it anymore. It's doing nothing for me. It's making me a little bit sick. What happens when a church loses its edge? What happens when a disciple loses their edge? I think when a church loses its edge, we become a social club with a list of social causes. And we don't even notice that Jesus has stopped attending our meetings. And interacting with each other socially is important. <laughs> it's something Jesus brings into our life. And social causes are important. In fact, many of us have come awake to the way God is at work in the world and in society in ways that we weren't before. And so we, we, we feel led to engage in those things. But look, when our faith loses its edge, we just become this social club with a list of social causes that we can feel good about and when Jesus is calling us to an offering, hear this, a life of passion and power. He says, I'm standing at the door, I knock, I want to come in and eat with you. Intimacy, passion. That's what he's offering. And then he says to the one who's victorious, will come and sit on my throne with me. Power. Passion and power. And when we have a flat Coke faith that has lost its edge, we trade passion and power for a life marked by comfort and criticism. This is my fear. Have you, have I, have we become a church that has lost its edge, living in relative personal comfort and feeling good about ourselves by the use of criticism pointing out in others where they're missing it, pointing out in groups or organizations where they're missing it, or even pointing at the institution of the church that we ourselves are a part of and saying that's where they're missing it. When Jesus is saying, I want your heart, I want to give you mine, I want to, make your, I want to set your heart on fire, and I want to give you purpose in the world so that you can... Go out and make a real impact. Passion and power exchanged for comfort and criticism. 
Are we comfortable settling for security, focusing on survival maybe? Maybe this is what's so weird about, about having enough to get by is you're still stressed. Right? Anybody experienced this before? You don't have to raise your hand. I know it's a little awkward, but like, oh, I got a raise. Oh, I got a promotion. Oh, we, I finally got some, uh, you know, some overhead financially in my life. Why am I still stressed about money? Why am I still worried about this thing? Oh, because, you know, we decided we had to like, you know, I got a new car. <laughs> and now I don't have the money anymore. Or, what, or even just the thought of our, our focus used to be on getting to a place in life where there was enough income. Now we're, our focus is on protecting it. And the fear of not having enough in the moment has turned into a fear of not having enough in the future. Because I learned that way of relating to finances then. And so I'm still stressed. I'm still worried all the time. And so somehow a life in pursuit of comfort still feels stressed out. I don't know. Can anybody, would you? Right? Okay. Thank you. Because it's, it's, it's a mirage. Once again, the antidote is risk and generosity. And the criticism, oh, it's so easy. And we live in an age of criticism. There's multiple factors contributing to it. Part of it is that we all just had to stay at home for so long. You couldn't do anything but criticize. <laughs> you couldn't do anything but get on social media or dare to watch the news and see how someone was getting it wrong, how you would have done something different. But no one asked you to do that. So you can't know that you would have done it different. Hey, yo, sorry. I was expecting a good word, bro, but that didn't happen. That's all right. <laughs> Criticism's so easy. It's easy for me. It's cheap, though. The costly thing is risk and generosity. It's getting involved. It's getting dirty. It's stepping out and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on the team. Hey. <laughs> it was an accident, but I'm letting it ride. I'm going to put myself at risk. There's this quote that you've heard before that um, came to mind as I was thinking about this message by Theodore Roosevelt. Brene Brown has, has made it very popular. <laughs> um, and it's this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man, substitute woman if you want to, who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly." so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I think this is a word from Jesus for us today. In an age of comfort and criticism, and this isn't just for Grace Midtown, I think it's just at work in our society. I think this is a word for us at Grace Midtown. In an age where the temptation is to live a life of comfort... And to feel good about that, 
by criticism. <laughs> the call is wild, is, is creative risk and wild generosity. It's to get your face dusty again, maybe for the first time. It's to acknowledge the hurdles and the obstacles in your life and to, to get in touch with your sense of need. And nothing gets you more in touch with your sense of need than putting yourself out there. That's vulnerability. You know what you need, the, you know what you lack when you say yes to something that you have no business doing. <laughs> right? But it's in your heart and you can't shake that thing that God's saying. And fill in the blanks here. I don't, I don't know. What's the thing in your heart? What's the risk that God's leading you into? What's the scary place? What's the step that he's saying? You, life is about more than clinging and holding on. I'm, I want to take you on an adventure. But I'm scared. What if, I, what if I lose? What if I fail? You fail while daring greatly. You can be proud when you look up with the dust and the blood and the sweat on your face. Risk and generosity. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And for us today, the response is just going to begin with, where, where do I have need in my life? Maybe I'm deeply aware of it. Maybe I have been trying to avoid acknowledging that. But this is a moment that I can say that place of need can be, maybe that's the door Jesus is knocking on. And I can't hear him knocking because I, I'm refusing to go anywhere near that door. But he's saying, I want to I enter your life through the place that hurts. I want to enter your life through the place where you feel ashamed. I want to enter your life through the place where you're afraid that you're not going to make it. I stand at the door and I knock. Anyone who opens that door, I'll come in and dine with you. We're going to respond in worship. And I just want to invite you, you can stand, you can sit, you can journal, you can sing along. Jesus, how are you coming to me today through my place of need? How can I say yes to you just in this very moment and respond in Jesus' name? Amen.